like we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on your Monday, July 7th. Happy 7-Eleven Day. Is that still a thing? 7-Eleven still like give away like free slushies and stuff? I don't I I mean, I've probably only been to a 7-Eleven like once or twice in my life, and obviously Wait, nothing too memorable. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm I'm not kidding. <laughs> I swear. I what? How? You've surprised were... me with some things before <laughs> on this show, but that is the most wild. You've well, only been to there... a 7-Eleven once or well, twice. I, gr- I grew up in Topeka, and there aren't really many 7-Elevens. There's more like quick shops or something like that, or quick trips. I guess that's there's fair. not really there. There aren't really any 7-Eleven, or at least in the area that I grew up in. Yeah, now that I think about it, there's not a 7-Eleven Lawrence, is there? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe I'm misremembering. So I guess I guess that checks out. Um, well, if if it is, I don't know. I I'd, I'd prefer if anything. Like that'd be cool if they gave like cheaper gas or something. Um, so we're gonna uh talk with John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant coming up in about 35 minutes from right now. Case of the Mondays at the top of the four o'clock hour. Um, David Lesky is gonna join us at 4:35 to talk Royals, who are playing right now and currently winning. In the first of their doubleheader, they made a trade earlier today, so there's actually a lot to get to for the Royals. And then we're going to start our KU football positional previews. We're going to get to the quarterback deep dive coming up in the 5 o'clock hour here today. Uh, But leading off the show today, more realignment talk. Nothing new has really happened over the course of the weekend or anything. I know some people are speculating that uh, maybe some news would occur or uh, maybe a team would, would leave or whatnot. Uh, this is going to be something that, that probably takes a little bit of time, even if it does end up happening. Like, for instance, keep in mind, I think it took about two months, took about 50-something days between when OU and Texas left the Big 12 or, or announced they were going to be leaving because they haven't left yet uh, until when the Big 12 officially added those schools from the AAC and, and BYU. It takes some time, and in this situation, like, as much as maybe even if some of these schools are leaning toward leading the Big 12, they're not going to just make a rash decision. Like, they're going to want to see all the numbers in front of them. They're going to want to see all of the options in front of them so that they make a, you know, this is obviously a big deal, whatever you decide to do. It's a, a possible school and, and program-changing thing that you're doing. You want to make sure you're, you're making the right decision with all the facts in front of you. So from that standpoint, of course, it would take some time for something like this to happen. It's not just going to be as simple as, Okay, well, we found out USC and UCLA are leaving. Very next day, quick reaction, we're going to go. No, the people in power at these universities are not people who tend to work on the, okay, let's make a quick emotional reaction to this stuff. So it's going to take some time if anything does happen. I'm still a little skeptical that anything will end up happening in terms of the Big 12 scooping up some of these Pac-12 schools. I felt like kind of from the get-go, even some of the reports have been – I don't know whether it's been a situation where somebody's just trying to leak something out to help in their regard or a situation where 
maybe this is preemptive or, or maybe some of the leaks and, and reports that have come out are from a side of like the Pac-12 who are trying to block things from happening. I don't know. But this comes from John Canzano, who he works with Fox Sports. He runs basically the Oregon equivalent of our show here um, in the Pacific Northwest. And here's what he uh, reported over the weekend. The talks about the Big 12 Conference poaching Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado is dramatically overstated. I don't blame the Big 12 for angling and dreaming about possibly adding a Pac-12 university. I don't blame conference universities for making a contingency plan. But I'm convinced that the Pac-12's remaining 10 members are galvanized right now. How confident are the ADs themselves that they'll stick together? I asked two. First one said, quote, confident. The second one said, feel very confident, and we have good options. Now, you don't know which ones he's talking to. Is right. he talking to the ones <laughs> that, you know, is he talking to Oregon State and, and Cal, where it's like those haven't been mentioned with the Big 12, where it's like, of course, they're going to feel confident about sticking together there. Or is he talking to the ones in Arizona and Arizona State? Also, let's bear in mind that's 20%. Yeah, exactly, but right. It, but uh, obvi- obviously, I do see where it comes from, that that could also be the mindset of the other eights. Right, correct. And and also, like I would imagine, like all of them are talking to each other, you know what I mean? So if you do feel confident, it comes from conversations and others. Now, that said, we've discussed this before, um, especially with like Colorado making their statement last week or whenever that was. Like, even if you're going to go, like it's not like USC and UCLA were you know, reading or, or leaving hints and, and stuff that they were going to be leaving soon. I'm sure if you asked them last summer, like, do you feel like you're in a good spot? They would say, yeah, we do. We're all unified and doing this or that. And then all of a sudden they leave. So like you're, it, it's kind of like a game of poker. You're not really going to show your cards and, and that's going to be the case for the universities and, and the presidents and the athletic directors. So I get that. But certainly the more time this goes on and, and I, I can't help but think like honestly seeing how the Big 12 handled this similar situation last year, that has to kind of be a calming effect for the Pac-12, right? I mean, the, the blueprint's yeah. out there. You lose your two big schools in the Big 12, Texas and Oklahoma, and in the case of the Pac-12, USC and UCLA. And yes, the Big 12 is not in as good of a state, you know, moving forward than they were with Texas and Oklahoma. Certainly you would lose some money from that and you're going to lose uh, – some power as a conference and everything from that. But overall, you added some schools, you stabilized yourself, and you seem to be in a pretty good spot right now. For the Pac-12, yes, of course, they would take interest and, in, in, you know, essentially do the equivalent of like a recruiting visit. Like we're taking our, you know, visits and all that stuff. Um, we're going to keep our contingency plans. But seeing what just happened last year, like how would you not as a Pac-12 school just say, Okay, well, the Big 12 just buoyed themselves by adding these teams from other schools last year. Like, why can't we just do the same thing? Yeah, you mentioned, you know, the second AD off of that article said, we have good options. Does the good options mean of leaving, or does the good options mean of teams that are thinking about maybe coming to the Pac-12? Because right now, they could just rename themselves back to the Pac-10, but I'm sure they don't want to. Mm-hmm. They want to they stay the Pac-12. Why not go out and possibly get those two expansion options at least? Yeah, I, that's that's a good point. That last part of that, we have good options. Could that be in reference to options of teams to bring in, right? Are there certain schools that you think would make good fits to come over? Is the good options in reference to possible media deals, possible TV packages mm. that you have coming your way, right? The, the Pac-12 moved up their media rights availability to where they can, you know, 
kind of uh, see what the market beholds for them um, is whether it's ESPN, whether it's Fox, you know, uh, some other third party uh, streaming uh, service like an Apple TV or a Hulu or Netflix or whatever, like is one of those providing them a good option or, or again, he says options, so multiple options that they're going to be okay media wise. Now, the Big 12 is not undergoing that, but I'm sure it's easy to at least get like some estimates on this stuff to where um, some of these schools that, you know, maybe on more the borderline of trying to figure out what they're going to do. Like they'll probably hear both sides and figure that out. But that's kind of where the the discussion comes to a head. It's that what is this truly about if you're like a Pac ten or Pac twelve school? Is yeah, this, now you're now you're thinking about calling it the Pac ten. I know, now, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it was for so long that that's what's funny. Like I finally have gotten around to over the last couple of years. Like Pac Ten is is it just sounds wrong at this point. But for the first handful of years that it changed to the Pac twelve, mm-hmm. the Pac twelve sounded wrong. But now it's it yeah it's just who knows maybe they'll even go beyond that. Maybe they'll be like the Pac fourteen or Pac sixteen or whatever it is. Um, is this just purely about money for these schools? That's the big I think question to me here because you know if it is just about money. The Big 12 distributed, I think it was like $42, $43 million per team this past year. Now, that was with Oklahoma and Texas in the league. But out of comparison, the Pac-12 distributed in the low to mid $30 million per year. So you have about a $10 million difference per year to go into the Big 12. Again, though, you lose Texas and Oklahoma, that drops the value of the Big 12. You lose USC and UCLA, though, that drops the value of the Pac-12. Now, on one hand, I would say that Oklahoma is, you know, a bigger brand than UCLA and Texas is as big of a brand as USC or Oklahoma is as big of a brand as USC and Texas is a bigger would, brand than UCLA. Right? I would argue Texas is better, not quite as much of a brand as USC. Yeah, I, I, I just mean in terms of like what their value that they bring to like the media landscape. Right? Gotcha. Okay. The, the point that I'm, I'm making is that the two schools, the Big 12 lost in theory are more valuable than the two schools the Pac-12 lost yeah, just in terms agree. of overall market. Right? I, would, I would 100% agree. Okay, so um, by that standpoint, you could argue the Big 12 is actually losing more money, but also USC and UCLA, even though they'd be losing less money, maybe it's a bigger percentage of the pie. I, I don't know the answer to that. Nonetheless, let's say it's about equal. All things are about equal there between what they're losing. So in theory, you're still up $10 million if you're the Big 12. But then you've also already added four schools. I mean, if if the Pac-12, if BYU were not added by the Big 12 by now, Pac-12 would probably be licking their lips to bring BYU on. They'd be huge for them, right? But they're not available now anymore. So I would also say because the schools you added, like, sure, they're not going to, you know, shake the earth with how much they're adding to the Big 12. But it probably raises it from being more of a, a $10 million to maybe a $15 million difference between the two leagues. Um, now, being in, in Silicon Valley, maybe the Pac-12 is able to find a, a media rights deal or a streaming deal. And also, that also doesn't take into account the, I think it's called like the third tier rights, the third party rights. I'm not like super in the know about all this stuff. Basically, that's a way for Big 12 schools that they're allowed to like make extra money. Like BYU has their own like TV streaming service, yep. like BYU.TV or something, right? Uh, Texas had the the Longhorn Network or has the Longhorn Network. That's extra ways for you to make money. I've- I think more and more schools are starting to adapt themselves yes. into that into that streaming service. Yes, KU doesn't really have one. They just kind of no, get theirs through like Big Twelve 3, now right? and ESPN Plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
So I don't know how that all adds in, but that's an extra way for them to make money where you make even more money than the Pac-12 does. Point being that the Big 12, uh, you're in a position to make more money in that conference unless somebody does come out of the blue and offer some huge deal to the Pac-12 as part of this. But the other point of it is that it's not a gigantic enough difference, I think, in the money where it's like, hey, if we go from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten, we're going to be making three times the amount of money on the media rights deal. It's like, no, we might be making $10, 15000000 million more, which, you know, that's nothing to balk at. That is a huge amount of money. But for these schools where they have to also take into account, you know, what is this going to do for us long term? Um, is this adding more money in the short term, but it's going to hurt us long term? Um, is it worth uprooting things? Is it worth, you know, destroying this conference and, and breaking up the history, essentially, of the Pac-10? Like, those are all questions that these schools have to answer, and it just makes me wonder if, you know, if for a lot of these schools, if the new media rights deal at the Pac-12 gets even close, like what if hypothetically the Big 12 is only distributing $7 million more than the Pac-12 schools? Is that worth uprooting if you're a Pac-12 mm. school? I mean, it, it, yeah, in contrast, it's really not that. I wonder if some of it has to do with the stability. That's what I That's what That I too, mean. yeah. I, uh, do you think that by chance? Well, I mean, in th- you would just think right now the Big 12 would have more stability because with the Pac-12, there is a lot more you know, uncertainty with those schools leaving and are other schools going to leave too because that's that's the crux of this all. If if two other schools gets, get poached from the Pac-12, then all of a sudden you're in a situation where, no, we have no stability. But if those 10 schools are able to really unify and they add more schools similar to what happened with the Big 12 last year, then they do have stability. Right. I, I think in terms of uh, uprooting things, yeah, I mean, you could you could make a case for either side, whether it's worth it or it's not. I would say, you know, you could you could probably figure something out as a as a collective conference if you're making just that little less than the Big Twelve is, or vice versa with the Big Twelve and Pac Ten. I think they could I'm calling it Pac Ten now. Yeah, Pac twelve. Right. <laughs> um I, I think you could find a way to make that margin a lot smaller. Then yeah, let's say like seven mil, mm-hmm. because yeah, you could make the case that it's worth it. Or you could make the case that it's not. I I think it could go either way. I will say this: like the one thing that that works out for the Big Twelve is that, like I said, you just basically need to pluck one school, two schools, whatever it is, to basically break the dam. Because right now the dam is being rushed by water. There's some cracks in it. They're trying to repair it. If nobody leaves then they're going to have stability they're going to add more and they're going to you know fill those cracks essentially if you can even get one of those schools like if if the big 12 even got like colorado to leave and and come to the big 12 at that point it would feel like the dam would would fully break and that that would be the the last straw that broke the camel's back whatever saying you want to talk about right um because at that point then it's like, okay, it was one thing to lose those big titans who have been maybe one foot out the door. Now we're starting to not obviously have trust in each other that we're going to stay together to where maybe our more middle tier or smaller tier schools are leaving the league as well. Like that would then open the opportunity where it's like, okay, we just poached another one. Now you want to come along before it gets even worse, Arizona and Arizona State, because we're going to give these spots out to somebody else if you don't, right? And, and it becomes more of a thing. So 
even if for some of these schools, if the money can be close with the new media rights deal, if some of the schools are like, no, let's build it ourselves. We're going to build our own brand. We're going to stay here. We're not going to uproot things. We're not going to you know, mess with history or whatever. Um, if one school even, and that's the beauty for the Big 12, even just one school says, you know what? The seven extra million dollar a year or whatever it ends up being, right? It could be more than that. 15, 20 million dollars is worth it to us to cause this chaos and to leave. <laughs> That's all you need if you're the Big 12. I mean, that well, I, I just think what you were saying about like possibly just building up our brand, I think that has to be the mentality. I'm just trying I I mean, I'm just trying to think of would they want to change in the sake of money or maybe in the sake of chaos to possibly bring in more and more schools? Mm-hmm. Definitely possible. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk more about this in the coming days. Uh, John Kirby going to join us, talk some KU football in about 20 minutes from right now. There's a new KU football edition. We'll talk about him on the other side. With Lane Gillespie, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, the KLWN app. Depend on it. Did you know that on our website, KLWN.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Joined now by John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Another new addition for KU football. They just keep rolling in. A couple weeks ago it was you know, bringing on another linebacker. This week bringing on... Uh, another defensive back. The, those seem to be the most popular positions that KU has kind of added here via transfer. And the latest is Monte McGarry, who is a transfer from Utah State. You see some of the other schools interested in him, like Auburn, UCLA. There, there, there's some other uh, pretty prominent schools that had an interest in him. And, you know, I know that's not the be-all, end-all, but that certainly makes you feel better than if that weren't the case. Uh, so what is KU getting in, in Monte McGarry, and what are kind of your expectations for him as he comes to what I believe will be just one season in Lawrence? Yeah, that's correct, Derek. He's got one year of eligibility. Um, you know, it was interesting when I was talking to him. You know, he only played one year of high school football, and that was his uh, that was his senior year. And, it, you know, he told me, you know, he grew up, basketball is his main sport. And he, he even told me he considers himself more of a natural basketball player than a football player. So when I was talking to him about, you know, where do you project? Because he's kind of taken a long road to Lawrence. I mean, he's been at South Dakota State. He's been at Troy. He's been at Iowa Western Community College. He's been at Utah State. You know, he's been some places. And he's actually done some different positions, right? He's played safety. He's played corner. Last year they had him at safety some. They had him a little bit at corner. Different stops they've had him at corner. So he fits the mold of several of these defensive backs that they've picked up in the portal that can do multiple positions, and you really don't know where they're going to project. So I was asking him, I said, you know, where do you see yourself? And he said, you know, he was a real good defender in basketball. So he said he sees himself lining up on a receiver one-on-one because he, he, he views his skills as someone 
who can be a lockdown, one-on-one corner type guy. So that's kind of what he told me where he thinks he'll start off at, but he's still not sure because I think Kansas recruited him as a defensive back, you know, that can do different things, which they've got a few of these guys that they picked up from the portal. Yeah, that's definitely been a theme, like Jared Paul kind of playing that safety and and corner, whether it's been at like Rutgers or Eastern Michigan or wherever. And, you know, I, I look at that secondary and you have a lot of guys with talent that uh, I think maybe are young and, and we saw them play last year, but maybe uh, in an ideal situation down the road, you wouldn't be playing people um, that you wouldn't want to. But like you have Jacoby Bryant and OJ Burroughs, guys that I'm really high on of what they could become. But again, maybe they're not quite ready yet. So is, is that kind of the indication to you? Because obviously this is uh, a, a ton of transfers that they've added in this back end, whether it is a Jarrett Paul, whether it is Marvin Grant from Purdue, you go on and on and on down the list. Kalen Gervin from Michigan State. Is this kind of an indication that they like some of the talent of the young guys, but after seeing what happened last year, they want more ready guys now that they can kind of develop those guys and give them time? Well, I think there's a combination. You know, Derek, with, with the portal now, okay, and then you've got this new 25-man rule, which I think – has probably been one of the biggest changes in college football in recent years. I mean, you know, we, we talk about NIL and we talk about the transfer portal. The fact that they did this 25-man rule, that opens it up now to get like Monte McGarry, right, for one year. It doesn't hurt you, okay? Jalen died. Jermaine Dye's son, okay? He's another one of those guys who can play corner or safety. He started like the first Three games at corner, I want to say. Then they moved him to safety, and they thought his film was actually better as a safety, although they liked him as a corner. So I, I think what you what the goal is is you say, we're going to improve our football team, okay? And I don't think you look at it as, hey, we're going to go take X amount of this position or this position. I think you look around and you say, now, they, they went into the, the recruiting season, this spring portal season, saying, we've still got to get some defensive backs, Okay. But at the same time, I mean, if a guy comes along, like Monte McGarry, okay, I don't know if they were sitting here saying, hey, let's take another guy. But if a guy comes to you and he can give you a year or two, and with the new 25-man roster, that scholarship doesn't hurt you because you're going to see this happen a lot, Derek, all over college football. A one, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but a one-year rental, okay, you bring them in, he plays for you, maybe gives you some depth, maybe gives you some special teams, maybe even starts, okay? But he got you through a season that maybe you were able to develop a younger guy. And then if you need to do it all again, you just go get another one-year rental because that's where the transfer portal and the change of this 25-man rule has changed everything. It no longer hurts you to just go get a one-year guy because you can just flush the system and redo it all the next year without any scholarship issues or limits or anything. So I think they're just trying to find the best players, the most players they can. And as long as they don't have 85 scholarships, heck, I mean, if, if, if some safety comes along next week and they watch his film and they go, hey, this we think this guy can play, okay, you can go get him. I mean, it's, it's nothing hurt anymore. 
Is that kind of the the similar story then for you know Lorenzo McCaskill, the the kid who comes over all Sun Belt from Louisiana? Um, again, like you've you've added other linebackers uh, in the transfer portal as well with Eric Gilliard and and Craig Young, right? And we've heard of possible breakouts for a guy like Taiwan Berryhill or whatever. Is that kind of the same idea where it was just hey, this kid happened to, to pop up in the transfer portal? He's a really good player on a program that we've seen pop in the top twenty five the last couple of years. We'll take him and we'll figure it out from there. Well, you know, McCaskill's a little different because, you know, the guys, you know, he's had 165 tackles his last two years at Louisiana, who's a top 25 football team. So he has been a guy that he's a producer. And I got to tell you, when you look at McCaskill, I, I know I saw some comments on our message board from people saying, hey, he'll be a good depth guy. He'll be a good guy to, you know, have there to fill holes. I mean, Lorenzo McCaskill is going to KU to start. Okay, I mean, this guy started at Louisiana the last two years who probably would whip up on KU, to be honest with you. I mean, they're, they're pretty good. So, you know, now with McCaskill, you also got to realize there's a Detroit connection there. Okay, his first scholarship offer came from Buffalo when Chris Simpson was the coach there. Chris Simpson did an in-home visit with him. When he was at Buffalo, he knows Kalen Gerben. He knows Rich Miller. He knows some of those kids from Detroit. So KU's kind of building this little bit of this Detroit pipeline going on here. But there were there were some connections to Kansas that helped McCaskill, you know, get there. We're talking with John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant here on Rock Jock Sports Talk. I want to get into maybe some position battles that, that could be interesting with uh, camp coming up here in, in about a month and later this week. Obviously, we have Big 12 media days and everything, and we're going to be able to hear uh, from a handful of, of the different players here. Um, I think quarterback is probably less of a, a position battle. I, I know they say it's open and they're going to give Jason Bean a shot, and who knows with any of the freshmen or, or whatnot what they do, but feels like Jalen Daniels has a bigger edge on that spot than maybe we've seen in recent years. Obviously, running back, you're going to play a lot of guys. Uh, where is the biggest position battle for you on the offensive side? of the ball well I think it's running back um well you, you know I say that I, I guess I'm not really specifically looking at the tight ends because tight ends definitely there, there's a log jam there right I mean you've got a lot of capable players at tight end there and, and I don't know if they'll just always play one or they'll kind of mix an H back in with it and play a tight end if they get two on the field because I think Kotelnicki had some tendencies in the past at Buffalo to do that. So, you know, tight end, I think you've got several bodies fighting for one spot. But but I really think on the offensive side, you've got running back. Okay, I mean, you know, I've got to think that the, the guy that comes out first, you know, is going to be Devin Neal. You know, he's, he proved last year he's a Big 12 back. But, I mean, you've got some good guys behind him. I mean, Kai Thomas led Minnesota in rushing. Uh, Daniel Hyshaw's c- coming off the injury. I heard he had a, a, a good spring and he's looked good this summer and he's healthy and, you know, he's a strong guy that can run. You got Sevion Morrison, a former four star running back. He's transferred in. So, I mean, you know, Derek, last year, I want to say it was the last two weeks of the season, you know, I, we're sitting here talking like, who's going to be the running back? Because everybody was hurt. Okay. So, you know, you, you're going to need the backs, but boy, there's four really good running backs fighting for one spot there and I will mention receiver and I don't know I don't know that the competitiveness of the of how the position battle is going to shape up at receiver but here's what I do know 
you've got to replace Kwame Lasseter, all right? And, I mean, he's the guy that, you know, he was the go-to guy. I want to say he was targeted twice more than any other receiver on the team. So he was the guy that, that, that any quarterback last year looked for. And I still think it's important. And I know Jalen Daniels is even on record as saying, you know, I don't know that I need a go-to receiver. I just need guys to, you know, step up and be there and play their positions. But I still think deep down, when it's third and five and you're in a tight game in the fourth quarter, right, and there's a pass play on, every guy has a guy that they look for, okay? And I, so it's going to be interesting to see who establishes them, themselves as the receiver that the quarterback's going to look to in a key situation. On the defensive side of the ball, it, it feels like, because everything you said, there there's certainly position battles and everything there, but for the most part, we know so many offensive linemen are back. Like I said, it feels like the quarterback maybe has a bit of an edge this year, and even then, even with all those running backs competing, you still feel confident in knowing certain guys are, are going to get a certain amount of carries. The defensive side of the ball is really interesting to me for a, from a position battle, especially when we circle back to what we talked to at the beginning here, all these kind of transfers that you've brought in on the defensive side of the ball. Um, I, I looked at that linebacker position that, that really sticks out to me. So, like, you have Gavin Potter, who is a experienced returner, but has obviously struggled uh, at times in the past. Rich Miller really came on at the end of last season and, and maybe was KU's best returning linebacker. Taiwan Berryhill, we've heard a ton about being a potential breakout candidate at the linebacker position. And then you have all of those uh, transfers with Craig Young, Eric Gilliard, and uh, the newest one in, in Lorenzo McCaskill. How do you kind of see the linebacker position um, playing out, and is that the biggest position battle on the defensive side? Oh, I think I think linebacker might end up being probably one of the top one or two position battles on both sides of the ball. And, I mean, listen, you just ended your segue there with the question to me. You mentioned McCaskill, Young, and Gilliard. Okay. I mean, Craig Young is a physical freak who came from Ohio State. I mean, he was playing snaps at Ohio State. Toward the end of the year, I think he started against Michigan State. Uh, Day, the head coach from Ohio State, was on record saying, hey, we got to get him more involved in our offense or in our defense when they were playing Michigan State because they said, hey, he's going to be really good against the run game. So here's Ohio State talking about they got to get Craig Young more involved. Okay, You mentioned Eric Gilliard, 200 tackles at Central Florida in the last three years. Okay? You mentioned Lorenzo McCaskill, who we talked about earlier, 165 tackles the last two years at Louisiana. You just named three guys. Who could be your starting linebackers who weren't even on the team last year? All right. Then you take the guys, okay? You take the Potters and you take, like you said, Rich Miller really came along and, and, and you can just see and I hear the, the leadership things he has. And Barry Hill's another guy that they've talked a lot about. And then all of a sudden you're going, man, there is going to be some knockdown, drag them out battles in fall camp at the linebacker spot to see who's going to win win it. And, and i got to tell you, Derek, if I was a betting man, I'd say you're going to go in, as long as everybody stays healthy, you're going to go in the first two, two, three weeks of the season, probably with that still being an open competition, until somebody can step up and say in a game, hey, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that should be the starter. I think there's enough bodies on that at the linebacker position that this, I don't know that you're going to know at the end of fall camp who your best three are when you've got, you know, a, a pretty good group to choose from now. 
Yeah, it certainly feels uh, kind of night and day from from where it was last year. Just a lot more depth, a lot more uh, potential star power at the top. Uh, the back end, I, I think, is interesting as well. I mean, we we know Kenny Logan, you know, all Big Twelve player. You slot him into a spot. You don't really worry about that. But outside of that, it feels like that's pretty much wide open for who starts at the corner spots, for who starts at the other safety, whether it's transfer coming in, whether it's the continued improvement and progression of a guy like O.J. Burrows or Jacoby Bryant, Cameron Dabney, Romello Dotson, any of these names um, as far as the secondary. What do you kind of highlight uh, in the back end there as far as position battles? Yeah, well, I just I think Kalen Gervin, who started at Michigan State, I just think he's got to be a guy at, at the cornerback spot. They needed cornerbacks, okay? I mean, and you know, Burroughs, I, I look at more of a safety. Um, so I think Gervin will, is one of my is my odds on favorite to be one of the starters. And then I think it's going to come down to the development, Derek, that, that's happened this summer in the weight room. What's going to happen in fall camp? You know, Jacoby Bryant, Romello Dotson, uh, Dabney. I mean, there's there's guys that are going to be in there that are going to be fighting for that. And then the biggest question, and we talked about this earlier, Jared Paul, uh, Jalen Dye, uh, McGarry, are these guys going to be corners or are they going to be safeties? Because they all have corners in their past experience. They've all started that corner at some point at the Division One level. So, you know, it could be one of those guys that ends up coming back in fall camp playing corner that catches the coach's eye. So I think the wild card at the corner spot is who's actually going to play corner and who's going to play safety. He is John Kirby. You can check out all his stuff and go subscribe for a Jayhawk Slant membership. John, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day and uh, look forward to seeing you soon as we get ready for uh, another football season. Absolutely. Always good talking to you, Derek. That is John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. That's going to do it for the first hour of the show with Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go. Case of the Mondays coming up next. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? I got to get out of here. I think I'm going to lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You freaking me out, man. I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. I'm going to just calm down. Look around you. With Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. All right, it is your Monday, and it's time to get to the case of the Mondays. Who is having a case of the Mondays here today on your Monday, July 11th with Lane Gillespie? I am Derek Johnson, possibly 7-Eleven machines because they are being uh, used a bunch free slushies again. uh, As we kind of figured earlier, I guess there's not really many 7-Elevens in the area. I'm sure there's one, you know, nearby, but I don't think there's any ones. Yeah, probably Kansas City, something. I don't know. All right, cue the music. Let's find out who's having a case of the Mondays today. Uh, how about the mustard hot dog at the Royals game yesterday? I don't know who the person was, but he lost his pants. 
in the race. That's tough. Yikes. How, that would be such a fun underdog story if he lost his pants and still underdog won. Underdog or underwear story. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah, that would also be. Also underdog, no pun intended. Right. Um, yeah, that would actually be great. What if he just like stripped him off just to, to add to it? Um, yeah, that's that's like the worst nightmare. I uh, I don't know. Would you ever do the, the hot dog race? Oh, for sure. You would? One of these days. I Even mean, after seeing that? You wouldn't be too afraid that you'd lose your pants? Oh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> At least I get some uh, notoriety out of it. I get some publicity mm. more than I already get. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add here, but that is a very unfortunate event. Um, now, fortunately, the costume you know covers yourself up that I don't know if people really know who it is, hypothetically, unless you, like, release that route. So that's a positive um, good thing he wasn't like going commando that day or something. That would have been really bad. Okay, uh, next up, case of the Mondays, the Cleveland Browns logic. The Browns obviously traded away Baker Mayfield. They got a conditional fifth round pick from the Carolina Panthers. The Browns, uh, this is according to Pro Football Talk, reportedly viewed Baker Mayfield as, quote, childish and immature. And they wanted, quote, an adult at the position. So let's get this straight here. Because yes. again, like you can make real arguments that um, yes, the Baker Mayfield, you know, you don't want to deal with some of his antics and, and you don't like the fact that he is maybe a more like outspoken quarterback right. and blah, blah, blah. You want to, right? Like that's fine. I mean, we all remember the antics that he had at Memorial Stadium yeah, back in 2016. Right. So if you want to argue like you don't want that at your quarterback, okay, that's fine. Whatever. This uh, coming from the Cleveland Browns does not really hit for me. Um, in case you missed it, the Cleveland Browns have traded away a bunch of picks and given a like fully guaranteed $250 million contract to one Deshaun Watson, yeah. who is <laughs> I was currently undergoing suits for over 20 different uh, massage therapists who allege uh you know, yep. sexual assault and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, sexual harassment. I know I just laughed. I'm not laughing at that fact. Uh, I am laughing at the sheer at the absurdity, though. Yeah. Yes. Uh, because, again, the fact that you're like, no, we need an adult. We need someone who's mature. So we're going to go with the quarterback who... Thing, May not even yeah, play I, next I, year. I don't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, come on. Like, on, that's the reason you're going to give... How about you just give People, the reason that we wanted a better quarterback on the field, and so we're risking it from the PR standpoint, and we don't really care about um, what you think about that. We're just going to try to win games. We're just we just see more and more examples of people not thinking before they talk. That is just insanity to me. Um, so, I, I think the Cleveland Browns have moved into being probably one of the more hated teams uh, in the NFL, which is crazy because they're not a team that. You know, has had a lot of postseason success. Like a lot of times in the NFL or, or just in sports in general, we get tired of teams that consistently win, right? Like the Patriots are, are so good. And it's happening a bit to the Chiefs too, where from a national perspective, it's like, okay, we're rooting for someone else because right. we're used to this happening and, and we want someone else and, and they become the enemy that way. Um, the Browns have not really won anything. They won one playoff game with Baker Mayfield couple years ago against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Outside of that, it's been a couple decades since they won a playoff game. They've, you know, not won a Super Bowl, all those things, but that has not stopped them from being a public enemy one. Okay, uh, 
Next story. Well, that and the public laughing stock. Yeah, that too. It's it's a weird combination to be both. Certainly right. they're that. Uh, case of the Mondays for ketchup. I wow. guess we had uh, condiments, <laughs> condiments, I guess, are right? Having a case I mean, of the Mondays. The mustard hot dog, now ketchup here. Um, who knows? Maybe there's other condiments that are uh, having a rough go of it. Ketchup, though, because Heinz, which is the... I would say Heinz is the most notable brand of ketchup. I don't know. Would you say Heinz or Hunt's? Probably hmm. Heinz. I, I, I think, guess I would agree with that. I think Heinz more nationally. Um, I think Hunt's is... It gets played more in the Midwest, I would say. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think I think Heinz is the one. It's the go-to. So Heinz Fields has been notorious with Pittsburgh Steelers and their stadium. Um, no more. Their naming rights deal, they did not extend it for 2022. Now, I don't know if this was just them getting outbid or if they just straight up didn't want to extend it, but... They announced a new field name today. It is called Acrisure. I have no idea what this company is. I am looking right now, and I still don't have any idea. It says a global fintech leader. Acrisure provides customers with intelligence-driven financial services solutions for insurance, reinsurance, real estate services, cyber services, and asset and wealth management. Again, I read that, and I'm like, I still don't really have a clue what this company is or is about. I've never heard of that company before. Uh, so, you know, that's no fun. It's cool to have, like, didn't they have, like, a giant ketchup bottle? Am I just misthinking that? I mean, it sounds familiar. I would have, if since it was Pittsburgh, I, was, I much would have preferred the mustard bottle, honestly. <laughs> well, I would have, I, I saw somebody being like, they should, uh, you know, name it Permani Brothers Stadium. The problem is Permani Brothers, as great as it is, like, you know, that's it's kind of like a small chain bar. Like, there's no way they're going to have enough right. money to, to afford the naming rights of the stadium there. Um, but it would have been cool to have something like Pittsburgh-related, like Yingling Stadium, right? Yeah, they do have a giant ketchup bottle. So, or I guess bottles. They have the two ketchup bottles that, like, go on, on the side of the scoreboard. They're going to have to get rid of those. It just it gets rid of some mm-hmm. character. It's right. not fun. I don't what like they, it. What would they replace it with if they, if they had to replace it? Just... Computer? I don't know. Again, like I don't really have an idea based on reading that what this new company does. But yeah, bad, bad uh, weekend for condiments. So unfortunate there. Okay, case of the Mondays for traditional foul rules. The NBA Summer League is off and running, and it's always a good reminder that traditional foul rules are no longer really a thing. Um in the summer league because instead of getting five fouls you get 10 before you foul out so i mean to foul out you really have to be trying to foul people or something um james wiseman was just, a good reminder of this i just feel like that they just have no faith in these players saying no <laughs> I, I feel like there has to have been points where somebody has actually fouled out. so i actually have one um but james wiseman this weekend he had seven fouls in 13 minutes. And you see everybody who, like, if you type in James Wiseman on Google or if you see anybody talking about James Wiseman, you're like, wow, he looked really good. It's the first time we've seen him in a while. It's like, what do you mean? He had 11 points and two rebounds as a center, <laughs> and he had seven fouls in the first 13 minutes. How good did he look? What yeah. What are we doing here? Um, nonetheless, there have been some fun ones, and, and this brings it up. I remember uh, Tarek Black, former KU player, he had a couple games where he had like eight or nine fouls in the summer league, um, no which was like a perfect indication for him, who was like this big body center who could, you know, he 
good player and everything. Had a, a handful of, of years in the NBA. Made a bunch of money. Like, good for him and everything. Um, Greg Oden, I want to say, had like eight or 9,000 in one of his first NBA Summer League games. Hmm. And how about this? Thon Maker. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, I, I don't do. think he's still in the NBA. Uh, he fouled out of a Summer League game. <laughs> okay. Like I said, you have to be like trying. And, and honestly, that's what it is. If you foul out in a Summer League game, like at that point, maybe that's a... I don't know. Maybe that's that's like an indictment of what you could be as an NBA player. Because now that I go back and, and talk about all those players, you know, again, like to make it to the NBA is great and you make a bunch of money and everything. But as far as being like stars or anything in the NBA, that was not the case for any of those players. I'm sure you can find somebody who that was the case for. Probably. Okay, uh, case of the Mondays. Lamar Jackson. ESPN asked 50 executives coaches and scouts i don't think 50 of each but a combination of 50 yeah, combination uh to rank the top 10 quarterbacks in the nfl lamar jackson did not make the cut it, and that baffles me given that he was an mvp what, two years two, ago three seasons it was the year the chiefs not won the super long, bowl right? so it was 2019 yeah that was three seasons ago that's really not that long ago now obviously if you want to go recency bias like he had the injuries last season so you can sort of get that. And I will say this. Like, there are a lot of really good quarterbacks in the NFL right now. You list the, Did you have the top 10 list in front of you here? Yeah. On this, can you read, the, read it off? Uh, Aaron, uh, this is 1 through 10. Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Joe Burrow, Matthew Stafford, Justin Herbert, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, yikes, and Dak Prescott. I would put Lamar over Dak. Yeah, there's a couple guys on the list I would I would put him over to get him oh, yeah. on there. But I will say, like, it, it's not – you could make the real argument that it's not a slam dunk. Um, but this this can't help when he's literally going through contract negotiations right now as well. He's representing himself. And, again, that's not even mentioning a couple guys. Like, what happens if, if Trevor Lawrence lives up to the hype eventually? I know he had a bad rookie year. Or Kyler Murray has shown flashes. There's some other guys uh, who are not on that list as well we don't even mention so the quarterback position is is in pretty good shape here um yeah as far as guys on that list the first one that that popped to mind like Matthew Stafford I get it Matthew Stafford just, just won a Super Bowl right. he's a good quarterback don't get me wrong I would rather have Lamar Jackson than Matthew Stafford like if we're just putting it in a vacuum I think Lamar's better than him um who was number eight on the list Russell, Russell Wilson. Wilson I think you could argue that one um I don't know I I might lean Russell Wilson just because of the passing factor but like you could argue Lamar Jackson's better than him. And then, yeah, Dak Prescott, I for sure would have Lamar ahead of him. Who was ninth? Deshaun Watson. Yeah, again, that one's weird because if Deshaun is is playing and you separate the off-the-field stuff, yep. you could make the argument for Deshaun. But also, you know, the last time we saw fully healthy Deshaun, I get it. It wasn't all his fault. Like, Bill O'Brien stripped the roster around him, mm -hmm. um, and he put up numbers, but he went 4-12, and 12, which – that doesn't normally happen if you're, like, that elite of a quarterback. So you could argue Lamar over him. I, I think I would have Lamar at, at some point after naming those names, like somewhere in that 7 to, to 8 or 9 range. Um, so I would have him in the top 10. But, again, it's not that crazy to not have him there. But certainly that cannot be good for him, like I said, when you're in contract negotiations and trying to get every ounce of money you can from the Baltimore Ravens. Last one for Case of the Mondays, easily figuring out league standings. <laughs> So the WAC, the Western Athletic Conference, is changing how it will seed its postseason conference tournament. The 2022-23 season, so starting this next year, both in men's and women's side of things, for the, the basketball standings is not just going to be determined by conference wins and losses, 
but also by an algorithm that re rewards and punishes based off performance against all teams they face in the regular season. So that means that in the WAC, it's possible that a team could finish with the second best league record, but end up seated lower, like fourth or fifth. Um, and you could have the opposite happen as well. Now, a, a quick reaction to this, like you're going to have teams who are trying to, because I don't, I don't know what goes on into the algorithm. Like uh, they mentioned some stuff, but they didn't give the exact formula. Uh, this is what uh, CBS Sports was told by somebody uh, from the WAC. Um, essentially, what we came up with was a way to utilize the net, which is the NCAA evaluation tool, in order to provide the reward slash penalties for a particular game. It's weighted depending on where the game is at, just as the committee would look at it. And so it's a system where essentially we're trying to promote quad one, quad two games. And so when you look at it, not every game is worth the same inside quad one, quad two, just as the committee would look at. It. Obviously, a top 10 win is not the same as a top 30 win, similar, but not the same. The idea is to seed the conference tournament based on your full season play, not just your conference standings. Oh. Um, another reason for introducing the concept is unbalanced league scheduling. Because there is a 14-team league in the WAC, you can't play around Robin in an 18-game schedule. Uh, there's pushback from some inside the league, but ultimately it's the way that they decided to go. Only the top 12 make the conference postseason, so the 12 best league oh. records will qualify. So. Uh, from that standpoint, it'll be simple enough. You just have to have one of the 12 best league records to make it in. Then from there, it's seeded according to the resume seeding system with what they're calling it. So if you think about it, it's not that different than how we do the NCAA yeah. tournament. Once you qualify, then we seed you. It's not just based on who has the best record. I get that. Um, you get in by accomplishing blank, then it's resume, whatever. I do wonder, again, they didn't mention this as part of it, but like if part of the equation there is... You know how much you're winning by if that boosts your resume so much like you're gonna have teams starting to run up the score even more which to be clear like i don't really care about if that's what you want to do you do it i've never been a, a part of the standpoint of like oh it's just bad sportsmanship okay well i guess we're just gonna really find out but i will yeah. say this um this just seems like overly complicated to me because if the whole idea is to properly seed the the conference tournament like why does that matter in the whack? It's going to be a right. one-bid league. <laughs> Only the team who wins the conference tournament is going to go to the NCAA tournament. So this idea that you would want to set up your best matchups later on in the tournament, again, it doesn't really matter because you're not racking up wins enough to have multiple teams or whatever go into the NCAA tournament. So if in theory, if let's say uh, the, the team who gets the four seed in your tournament on a normal year is actually the best team in your league, but they just had a hard schedule or they had the hardest schedule in the league and they had a, a, some injuries when they played some of those good teams. So it dropped them down. And maybe as part of this new rule, they'd get the two seed, but as part of the past rule, they'd be the four seed by standings. Why does it matter? Because if that team right. ends up being good enough to win through the conference tournament, does it matter if they're the two seed or the four seed? Like it'll just all play itself out. Yeah, I think the, I, I think the same way. You know, it, it's just going to end up being confusing as all hell in my opinion. Yeah. I, I understand where they're coming from. They want to make it more like the NCAA tournament where they can kind of make it, I don't I don't know if I would say more fair, quote unquote, but it's just, I don't know. How long until this uh, possibly goes into Power 5 conferences? That's what I'm wondering. Um, like, imagine in the Big East, because Providence was like the, the darling 
or I guess the opposite of a darling of that because they just won all these close games. Like Ken Palm hated right. them. Their metrics were low. They won the Big East, but they could have been like the five seed or something yeah. like that. I don't know. I, I, I So I love metrics to, in, in, you know, your Ken Palms and, and these things to begin with because it helps you tell how good a team is. But I think that's more beneficial for trying to figure out a team, scouting a team, uh, how good the uh, like just things like that. Whereas from this standpoint, at the end of the day, the point is to win or lose the game. So if you're just talking about conference standings, right. it should just be about your record, in my opinion. But I get it. It's interesting. I hope this never comes to the Power Five, <laughs> to be honest. He is Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to take a timeout. David Lesky is going to join us in about 15 minutes. This is the Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Depending on it. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Shock Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Welcome back into RCST. Different time of the day, but it's still your Monday. We're joined by David Lesky of Inside the Crown. Subscribe to his Substack. You'll see the weekend in review every Monday morning and get you caught up with the Royals along with other articles as well, but pertinent today on your Monday. And certainly it's been a busy day for the Royals today. Doubleheader, already played one game, one, three to one. Um, they already executed a trade earlier today. I don't know. I feel like uh, we're, we're getting close to a uh, full day of Royals bingo when you have the second game coming up. Who knows? Maybe another player gets traded. I don't know. Uh, we're talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown. So after watching the Royals win 3-1 to one in, in the first of that doubleheader, uh, Vinny Pascantino hits the home run. He has another run driven in. Um, are you ready to declare the beginning of a hot streak for uh, Vinny P that maybe his underlying numbers seem to suggest could be happening at any time now? Yeah, I mean, he's swinging the bat well. He just hasn't been finding hits. Um, some of it is that he's not lifting the ball enough in general. But, um, yeah, I mean, hitting the ball hard, not swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. Like, it, it feels like he should, his numbers should be better than they are. Um, and typically when you get to that point that you're like, why is it, I thought he was hitting better. And you look up and all of a sudden he's, you know, 17 for 41 in his next 10 games or something like that. So I, I, I think it's probably happening, maybe. Um, I've thought that before with other players, so I, I could be wrong. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's doing what you need to do to have success. He just hasn't found it yet. And, you know, over the last few games, it, it seems like he's getting the ball in the air a little better. Um, I, I, think, I think the hits are going to start to come. And I think that uh, I, I'm pretty sure he's going to be just fine. I, I, I have confidence too. When you have a guy who doesn't swing at the pitches he doesn't swing at, it's hard to think he's not going to succeed. And I, and the way the way he handles the strikes, it, 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 I think it'll be hard for him to fail. Um, 
and as hard as he's hitting the ball, I think I think he's going to take off soon. After a start like that as well from Brad Keller, it feels like those two were, were quite the duo there. Um, should the Royals just wrap Brad Keller up in, in bubble wrap, shut him down before trying to trade him at the deadline? Or how do you think <laughs> this affects? Does it positively affect uh, at all like his trade value? He's pitched better over his last few starts. Um, he had a good start against the Tigers in Detroit. Um, then he, he pitched, I thought, better than his numbers against the Astros in Houston. Um, the defense really let him down. And then he gave up a home run to those to the little league seats and left. Like That doesn't bother me so much. When, when a guy gives up a home run that's only a home run in that ballpark, yes, it counts. Um, but also make that pitch in 29 other parks and you're going to be fine. So that doesn't really make me feel bad long-term impact so that's now three straight starts four out of five good ones um i I think if the royals are willing to move him and i don't know that they are i have you you hear stuff about michael a taylor and who knows about him we can get to that second but um you hear stuff about with with merrifield before he got hurt um obviously ben and and there's scott barlow i mean there's a lot of rumors around that even if they're just whispers there's not even whispers about Keller. And I don't know if that's because he struggled so much for, for a handful of starts, a few starts ago, or if the Royals just aren't willing to move on him, which I don't really get because he's going to be a free agent after next season. This is the time. But I haven't heard much. So I, I think if teams are interested, these last few starts probably do help them. It looks like he got his slider back a little bit. He had, I think, eight whiffs on it in this game today. Hadn't done that in a while. I thought it looked really good. He got strikeouts with his fastball, which I think was more Tigers-related than him, but still it happened. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if there are teams interested, I, I think it might up the calls a little bit. But, again, I, I don't know if the Royals are willing to move him, which they should be, but they may not be. Well, you just gave us a little uh, breadcrumb, a little hint there with Michael A. Taylor, a.k.a. Michael A. Tater right now. Um the, the way you just talked about it made it seem like he's not really someone they're looking to move either. Uh, did I read that right? No, that was actually more... Um, he. This is interesting. I, I, I think they might be willing to move him, and I think the trade they made today indicates that. What I'm really concerned about right now is, since he pitched on Saturday, he has not played center field. He didn't play center field yesterday, and I thought, ah, day off. He DH'd in game one, and I thought, it's hot. You know, it's hard to be out there for 18 innings when it's hot like that, covering the ground in Kauffman Stadium. And he's out of the lineup in game two. And so, haven't seen anything, haven't heard anything. I think Nathaniel will probably talk in a little bit. Um, I am curious if he's hurt. (laughs) If he's hurt from that pitching performance, and it stops them from trading him, I, I tweeted this. That would go atop the leaderboard of the most Royals thing ever. I think that would be number one. It would be ahead David DeHaze, ahead of him getting hurt in, where did he make, did he make that dive in Oakland? I can't remember. Maybe it was against Oakland. Whatever. David DeHaze just dove for that ball. I think he separated his shoulder out for the season. They couldn't move him. Ended up trading him for Vin Mazzaro. <laughs> like, like that, that was number one. This might move, this would move into number one if Taylor is hurt <laughs> from pitching. So I'm I'm concerned. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what what happens. Um, but uh, for now, it doesn't look great because the one of the best center fielders in baseball defensively hasn't played there since Saturday before he pitched. So we'll see how that goes. 
Yeah, and I mean, given the the team control and um, the way that he's hitting, in addition to the defense, like certainly there is there is a good return waiting on the other end if the Royals did decide to trade him. So you're right. If if that ended up leading to an injury that that keeps him away from that, that would be a massive haul. And it's it's one of those things where it's like when a position player pitches, you know, if you're a fan, you're just kind of sitting there watching it, like, oh, this is kind of cool, this is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, why would you do it with a guy who? Like you're trying to keep healthy by the trade deadline. That that seems a little silly. Okay, let's get into the uh, yeah. the trade that occurred today. Royals traded for three prospects from the Braves. Drew Waters, who was a former highly rated prospect, he's kind of stalled out though at the high end of the minors. Um, Andrew Hoffman, who's putting up really good numbers, pitcher in uh, A ball, and then you also bring on a kind of double A slugger who could be a uh, kind of, I don't know, like a throw-in to the deal. Um, giving up pick 35 in the upcoming draft this weekend. What are your thoughts on this deal that the Royals made? It's interesting. Um, my first reaction was, wow, that's a huge win. And then as I kind of looked at it more, I still I like the risk quite a bit in it. It's a risk. <laughs> it is definitely a risk because the reality is Drew Waters may never hit. And that he, he right now, I'll get to Hoffman in a second, but, but, but Drew Waters is the prize of the deal at this particular moment. And MLB Pipeline still has him ranked number one. I think they haven't re-ranked yet this, this season, but he was before the season. They're number uh, two or three. I can't remember how many people have come up for the Braves. I know, pretty sure Michael Harris was ahead of him. But um, he's been a highly regarded prospect up until like now. And, and some of that is well, all of it is his approach at the plate. It's not very good. Where I'm happy, where I'm, where I'm interested in this is approach is pretty much exactly what the Royals development team is really good at fixing. So that makes me excited to see what they can do with him. You wonder a little bit, is he, I don't want to say gone. I'm going to say too far gone, but I don't, I don't, I don't mean it that way because he still puts good bat on ball when he makes contact. But I wonder a little bit how easy, how, how much easier it'll be to fix him than it was, say, MJ Melendez or Nick Prado, who were in the tank after the 2019 season. Um, you know, they also don't have the 2020 year to to work with them without any pressure of any games, which I, I think actually ended up really helping the Royals quite a bit with those guys. So I'm curious if if they can get Drew Waters to be a decent, have a decent approach at the plate. And and not you know strikeout rate around twenty five percent walk rate at like eight percent maybe I think his defense and his he's got some power I think I think that'll make him a solid big league player um, I think he can handle center field in Kauffman Stadium and if they can do that I think this trade becomes a huge win it it's just a question um, I don't I don't know if they'll be able to but like I said I think it's worth the risk. And then when you look at a guy like Andrew Hoffman, who's the second piece in the deal, he he's really interesting to me because he throws strikes. He doesn't have elite stuff, but look, the Royals have had a lot of guys who have elite stuff and can't throw strikes. Why don't we try the other way around? You know, let's, let's see what happens when you go the other way. And to me, there's a lot of talk about pitchers who the Guardians go after in draft and in, in lower-level trades and things like that. This is that type of pitcher. Because they like to get these athletic guys who throw strikes, and they say we can give you a little more velocity. We can 
we can help your changeup. Now, the problem is I don't know if the Royals can do that part of it, but I like that they're targeting a different type of pitcher. And by the way, he's not. It's not like he has no stuff. I mean, he's 93-ish with his fastball. I've seen 96 um, in reports about him. So, you know, the stuff is there. The slider's pretty tight. Changeup has some potential. Um, and again, he throws strikes. So, I like that as a second piece. And I, and I think that it, it wouldn't surprise me if in two years we're talking about him and not Drew Waters at all. But for the time being, I like I like the risk on Waters because I think he's a great Milo candidate. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting to me because the Braves, um, you know, they they sold off Christian Pache, who was popping up at, at the top end of yep. this prospect list, and certainly they look right for doing that. And they kept Michael Harris, and that looks good. So if they're selling him off, a guy who, you know, yeah, you remember a couple of years ago when he was like in the top fifty of of prospects lists, really wherever you looked, but. Over his last three seasons at AAA, like by WRC+, 84, 94, 84. So, like, clearly been a below-average hitter so far. He's, he's still 23, so that's still, I think, slightly below what league average is in, in terms of, mm-hmm. of age at, at that level. So there still is potential there. The one thing that, that I find interesting, really, about this trade is that, obviously, you're, you're giving away pick 35. And, in theory, Drew Waters being and, age 20. And the 2.2 million in slot value. Yeah. Cool. So, so I'm curious about that. So let me ask this question first, and then and then I'll get back to what um, I wanted to get to here in a second. D- does that save them slot money for the draft that they can use to to pay other draft picks, or, or how does that work? So, you know, their their total value. I can't remember what it was now. Um, I think they were at like an eleven point six million, roughly, in slot value, which they can. That's what they can allot to their top ten rounds, and. You know, what they've done in the past, like last season with Frank Mozzicato and Ben Kuderna, um, they gave Mozzicato a smaller bonus than the slot value at what was it, seven, I think it was, um, and spent that money on Kuderna with their second pick. Well, <laughs> they've given away the $2.2 million now. They don't. Their second pick is now second round instead of competitive balance round A, um, which is technically a first-round pick, if, if you remember. That's where... Coar, Lynch, and Bubich were all first-round picks, even though they were 30, I want to say 32, 33, and 40. It might have been 33, 34, and 40 either way. Um, so they've got less money to play with. What I think is interesting about it is that, to me, signals that they are, they've got somebody or somebody's they want at nine, and they're going to cost the full freight. And so they don't need that second pick to help you know, supplements and things and take an underslot guy at nine. Of course, there are other competitive balance round picks they could trade back into. Um, they could get, I don't, know if they, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but if they've traded for the 40th pick, I think that's like 1.7 million. So they can get 1.7 million back. And, I, I, and that could be part of a deadline deal. That could be part of a deal that sends Ben Intendi somewhere and they get that back. I don't know. But um, as of right now, what we know I think what it says is that they are going to go after somebody who's not going to be able to be signed for half of slot value or 70% of slot value, whatever it might be. Okay, see, to me, that's that's a big win uh, in this trade because, you know, if I, I understand the pick and below slot value and it can help you later in the draft, but I've always kind of been in, in the idea that if you're picking top 10, like just take the best guy and, 
you know, work it from there. So I, I think that could be a positive. But what I do find interesting is is the idea that if Drew Waters, in theory, is 23, like you'd want him to be up sometime soon, like, you know, sometime yeah. next year, I would imagine, right? So in theory... Well, even this year, maybe, working yeah. with Zumwalt and, and Tozar in there. Yeah, right? And, and so in theory, that means that, you know, this is more of a a guy that would fit a timeline to to be on teams that you know, start getting better now or, or next year or whatever it is, whereas the second-round pick would more so indicate a timeline, depends if you went like high school or college, obviously, but uh, that could be a little bit further down the road, a couple years down the road. Sure. Again, it would kind of depend on that. Uh, should I read into that at all, that that's them saying, no, we're kind of doubling down on the idea that we should be good next year? Um, no, I, I don't know about next year necessarily. I, well, I think they believe next year. Um, I don't know that I believe it, but, um, 2024 at the very least, because anybody they pick in the draft, not anybody, but I, I feel like a, whoever they pick at 35 is probably not going to be a, a contributor by 2024. Um, and on the flip side of it, if they get higher end talent, sometimes those guys move really fast in the first round. And so, I, maybe 24 is a stretch for somebody they'd pick unless they get a college bat, but that could say, Hey, we're going to go out and get, I don't know, Jace Young, or I'm, I'm just off the top of my head just trying to think of a college bat, but I'm completely blanking on everybody in the draft right now. Of course, <laughs> but um, you know, somebody who, Hey, we think he can be up in two years. So I think when you combine both of those things, I think it says we are not, we're, we are, we are really focused on, 2023 and 2024, 2026 is important, but this trade was about the next two years in both, in both instances by, by forcing themselves into a full slot pick at number, at number nine and through waters. So I, I think that's fair to say. Um, I don't know if they're right, but I think it's fair to assume that that's their thought process. Okay, so we have the MLB draft coming up this weekend. Um, you mentioned something it, it, along with that that makes the MLB draft so much different than the NFL and NBA, where it's going to take some time before you actually see these guys in the majors. I'm starting to wonder. Uh, tell me if you think this is a horrible idea. What if, uh, like, like we can still air the draft and everything, but I think they should devote a a strong piece of of the draft coverage to here was the draft, you know, and and I'm going to ask you here what year would be the proper year that we should start going back and, and evaluating at this time um, and be like, you know, okay, this was the 2017 draft or whatever. It's been five years from now. Now let's look deeper into that draft because we have more time for this to have developed. Uh, so on, on that note, what would you be like, like what draft, I guess, how many years does it take to properly, do you think, start to evaluate how good of a draft that was? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know the answer. You know, I think that it kind of depends because what's really difficult about the draft is you have some guys who are 17, some guys who are 22. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a, I don't know, it, it, it's a very difficult. Um, well, like I'm, difficult I'm looking at the 2019 draft, and obviously Bobby Witt like headlines it, but, but everybody else, I don't see another. I guess Vinny Pascantino um, in the 11th Alex round. Noah is up you know yeah um so i don't know so so three years isn't enough four years probably is i mean i would say if you really want an answer on the draft 27 years 
which is crazy. But I mean, <laughs> if you want to really, but I'm saying, if you want to really look at the draft and yeah. see who's been successful, who hasn't, seven years because nobody is anybody who's drafted has a maximum of four years before they have to be added to a 40 man roster. Um, if you're under, if you're 18 or under, you need four years. If you're older than 18, it's three years before you have to be added to the 40 man or be exposed to the rule of five. And so that gives those three or four years to be added and gets the big leagues and produce a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's a long time. If you want to look at guys getting to the big leagues, I think you go back four years, maybe five. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's crazy. It's just a different world in, in baseball in the draft because it's just one of those things. But I, I do, I think, I think you might have to go back seven years for a really, really good in-depth look. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to have the most in-depth look in the entire world. Um, so I, I think that I think it's probably fair to go four years, maybe five, and, and call it good. As of four years ago, you have like the Singer Coar draft, which yeah. you, know, you have a lot of guys coming up, but it hasn't been necessarily ultra successful, uh, nonetheless. Uh, There's so, a lot of guys from other teams too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're talking with David Lesky inside the crown, Andrew Benintendi. 0 for 4 in the first game today, but uh, still has put up a fantastic year, earns an all-star bid. Um, what do you kind of envision like being an appropriate return? Uh, what's kind of like a, I don't know, you don't necessarily have to give me a team or, or specific names. You can if you want, but what do you envision that looking like if the Royals do end up dealing him at the deadline? I, you know, I wish I knew. I thought I knew. Um I thought, hey, the Chris Bryant trade, that makes a lot of sense. He brought back the number nine prospect and the number 30 prospect from the Giants. And then you hear this market is crazy for Andrew Benintendi. So I have no idea. I have no earthly idea what he can bring back. Um, and the other side of it, too, I don't know, are they going to include a second piece with him? Because if you look at, if you trade Benintendi and, say, Scott Barlow, I mean, that, that could change things quite a bit. I know Jim Bowden has some out there ideas. But one thing he mentioned was Benintendi and Barlow for Andy Pages, um, and I'm totally blanking on the picture he mentioned. But either way, that's a really good return. It was a good picture, too. Um, and so you start to think, well, what, what's, the, what's the highest they can get? And I don't, and they're not going to get a top 30 prospect for him, I don't think. But based on the, based on the, the interest in him, I'm not entirely sure that I, that I would discount anything else. Um, I, you know, I, I came into the season and even the last month saying, look, it's not going to be a system-altering trade. Whoever they pick up is going to be their number eight prospect or something like that after he gets into the system. I don't know that that's true anymore. I think that they could pick up somebody who slots in at four or five in their system, and that's exciting. I, I think that there is a, such a big market for him right now I don't know. I don't know what he can bring back, but I, I, it's more than I thought. I can tell you that much. All right, you can add one of these two former Royals pitchers back to the team at no cost: Jacob Junis or Jorge Lopez. Who you adding? Woo. I mean, Brian Lopez because he's healthy. <laughs> I think that you know, he's he's throwing BBs at the end of games, looking good. I found a tweet of mine from 2019 just to pat myself on the back, where I said, "I, I understand the Royals giving him starts, and they should." But he's going to be a really good reliever when they figure out mm. the start. <laughs> so I feel good about that. I think I, I mean, I, it wasn't a 
shocking revelation. The guy throws hard and has a good curveball that works perfectly in relief. But the Orioles have unlocked a lot in him. They, boy, they, they've done a really nice job. It seems like they've finally turned that corner in their rebuild. Um, they're, only, what, they're a game under five hundred right now. That's, that's <laughs> crazy to me. Which, on, on the other side of it, they went 52-110 and 110 last year. So, I don't, that's not the norm, but, like, anybody who thinks the Royals can't be a 500 team next season, I, I, look, I don't know that they will be, but they certainly can be. The Orioles are proving that it's possible. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay, before we let you go, player of the week. Um, well, I'm going to go from the whole week and not just since we last talked on Thursday, mm-hmm. but it's Andrew Benintendi. I mean, <laughs> he's simple. I got the numbers right here. 435, 552, 478. Um, not counting today. Um, 20% walk rate, 17% strikeout rate. It, it, it's bonkers. Not, he's not hitting for any power, but I don't care when you have a 552 on base percentage. Like, that's all that matters because it, it, he's, he's had a brilliant week. Like I said, it made his trade value go through the roof. Um, they're not going to move him until he plays in the All Star game for them, I don't think. But, um, and they probably shouldn't because the offer is just going to keep growing. But, he is, without a doubt, the player of the week. He is David Lesky, Inside the Crown. Subscribe to his Substack. David, appreciate spending some extra time today and uh, looking forward to reading whatever you write about today's doubleheader or whatever happens the rest of this week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to writing it because I haven't started yet. So. Right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> he is David Lesky, Inside the Crown. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Two hours down, one to go. KU football positional deep dive into the quarterbacks next. By the way, we're looking to start RCST Trivia Football Edition two weeks from today. So it'll be Monday, July 25th, and uh, we'll do registration starting sometime next week, probably later in the week next week. So be on the lookout for that. Um, Still looking for some sponsors for some of the bowl games and everything, but we'll get that all tied up. Okay, uh, so we're going to do a KU football deep dive on all the different positions over the next handful of days. Big 12 media days are coming up this week. We have uh, camp starting up in in August, coming up here in in less than a month. Uh, So the first position, naturally, is the quarterback position. And the quarterback position has been a position that has been much maligned at the University of Kansas over the last decade plus, ever since Todd Reesing. Seems like KU might have found an answer. And honestly, last year they got about as proficient of quarterback play, especially at the end of the season when Jalen Daniels really took over. And, and even a few games when Jason Bean was the starting quarterback. Like, uh, I think back to the Oklahoma game, I think to um, the Coastal Carolina game, like even the Duke game where you got that proficient play from, from Jason Bean, uh, where you got some of that last year. And even like looking for just like proficient, you know, quarterback play. It's it's basically like Carter Stanley's 2019 season. Outside of that, really not much to speak of. There was a year where Peyton Bender had like 13 touchdowns and three interceptions, but it was just because he was like checking everything down, and you know, it wasn't like a great season. But statistically, TD to interception rate looked pretty good. I don't know. It hasn't been uh, a lot of of great things to compare to. So let's start with the quarterbacks that are on the roster for this team. Um, Jalen Daniels, he's listed as a junior. Technically, he's a third-year sophomore. His first season was 2020. That was the COVID year, so in theory, it didn't count. That means technically last year he was a second-year freshman. 
Um, he they were they were going to redshirt him, so he was almost a third year freshman right. coming into this year, but ended up playing at the end of last season to to burn that redshirt because he wanted to try to help his team be competitive and win games, and they did win the Texas game and almost won the next two after that. So he's listed as junior. He has this year and two more years after that of play, unless he were to redshirt a year, then have another one. Jason Bean, he's listed as a redshirt senior, kind of in the same boat. He actually has two years left to play if KU wants to, or if he wants to, I guess. So he's a, he's going to be a super redshirt super senior? Next year he would be. Okay. Yeah, or, that's what I meant. I guess this year he would. I, I don't know. It's all so confusing. This year would be redshirt super senior. Next yeah. year would be super redshirt super okay. senior. Okay. <laughs> You should be in charge of of coming up with that. You should try to see if KU will like write that down on the <laughs> roster that way. Uh, Jordan Preston is a redshirt junior. Again, I don't I don't even know the years for him. It it gets harder for the guys who like haven't been playing really. Ben Easters is a redshirt freshman. He is truly a redshirt freshman. He came on. He was uh, a guy that they really targeted and and picked up a commitment when he was a junior in high school and then had kind of an up-and-down senior year of high school. Um, so he's a redshirt freshman. Jack Jackson, which, yes, that is a real name. Yeah, <laughs> You actually know Jack Jackson. I do. Um, he was a uh, he's a journalism student, and, you know, I just graduated from KU mm -hmm. in the School of Journalism. was part of the student radio. He still is from time to time, obviously. Represent, man. Yeah, exactly. Uh, most of the focus is on football, though, was so... Yeah, because yeah, I remember because we're all in a we're all in a group chat, and mm -hmm. I'm still part of that group chat. Now, at one point in uh, it was like winter, maybe a little after, he was like, "Hey, football tryouts are coming up. I'm thinking <laughs> of trying out," and he made it. Good for him, man. <laughs> That's an awesome story. I, uh, I, I, you know, I, you don't want anything happen to like the top quarterbacks, but like that'd be a cool story. Um. Is this what you tell me his nickname was? Jack Jack. Jack Jack. I think that's actually like the the youngest kid's name in uh, the yep. Incredibles, right? Yep. yep, that's the baby's name. And that one's like ultra powerful. So maybe Jack Jackson's holding down on us. But yeah, he's listed as a freshman. Technically, he's like a sophomore academically. Correct. I don't know how that works with, you know, walk-ons or whatnot. Um and then Ethan Vasco, he's not listed on the roster yet. That's because he won't join till the uh, upcoming fall semester, I believe. I don't know if he enrolled in the summer, and maybe they just haven't put him on the roster. But he's a guy they recruited, um, and he's someone who sounds to be as if, like, he, he's got a very strong arm, and, and he's somebody who seems to be, like, maybe they found a diamond in the rough here uh, with his kid. So he could, you know, maybe factor into a quarterback competition, maybe down the road, maybe be a guy who uh, eventually you know, turns into something once Jalen Daniels is done or, or whatever, however the timeline works out there, that he is someone definitely of interest to me. But as far as the the depth chart for this year, they, they, they say it's an open competition, and it is. Um, everything is, is open competition. But certainly it feels like Jalen Daniels has a heavy hand up on the competition. So right now I think you would kind of assume Jalen Daniels is the QB1, Jason Bean would be QB2, and then, I don't know, outside of that, it'd probably be a heavy competition for, for who would be the third. Ideally, you wouldn't have to go that far right. into the competition at, at some point. But there is a lot of confidence headed into this. You know, last year, you didn't really know who was going to be. You get the late transfer with Jason Bean. And then it was like, is it going to be Miles Kendrick? Is it going to be Jalen Daniels? Is it going to be Jason Bean? You didn't really know. We finally kind of settled on it until the Jason Bean injury into the season. Um, but this year, there's, there's really not those questions, which is unheard of, really, because even... In 2019, when Carter Stanley had had a really strong year for KU, like going into that offseason or going into that season in the offseason, 
we didn't really know who the QB was going to be, and it was still kind of trying to figure out who that was. Like it's been very seldom that we've gone into an off season and gone into a season being like, okay, we think this is the guy, right? And, and that has to at least. How much does it matter? I don't know, but I would imagine like if you're on the team. I mean, from one standpoint, from the guys who have to answer questions to the media, that has to be a bit of a, a sigh of relief that you don't have to keep answering questions about, well, what do you think about the quarterbacks? Who do you think is going to be the starter? Who throws the best ball? Who do you have the best connection with, right? Like, that has to be nice. But also just knowing from a standpoint of, like, what to expect, having that consistent rocket quarterback, uh, knowing, like, you know, who the leader of the team is and, and who the alpha is that everything kind of derives from from there, like, that has to be helpful, right? Yeah, but yeah, definitely, because... I mean, you think back, th th that was the big thing in the offseason for the past three seasons. So it is just a huge sigh of relief. Just, whew, okay, we don't, we don't, this is something we don't need to worry about. We can, we can just keep moving forward. So as far as Daniels, he's played 13 games over the course of his career, all at KU, completed 58% of his passes, almost 1,600 yards, eight touchdowns, seven interceptions. But those numbers are skewed. His freshman year, he got thrown into the fire as a 17 year old with an offensive line that couldn't block in a COVID year. Um, and that was kind of that a disaster. Year, that year, a lot of people opted out because of COVID. Yes, exactly. But you don't blame him for it. Uh, and he looked really good last year. He started the last three games of the season. He completed nearly 70% of his passes, over 200 passing yards per game, seven touchdowns, three interceptions. You won one of the games. You were ultra competitive and, and almost won the other two games as well. Then you have Jason Bean, who um, over the course of his career, 26 games between Kansas and North Texas, 56% completion mark, over 2,500 yards, 23 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. If you add on the seven rushing touchdowns, it's 30 touchdowns. He also had 840 career rushing yards. Last season, played 10 games. Really, it was nine because he got injured early in the Kansas State game. Six passing touchdowns, six interceptions, two more rushing touchdowns, over 1,200 yards passing, and 56% completion percentage for him the other guys don't have any college stats uh under their belt and so part of the question when you look at the quarterback position every year at least from where Kansas is right now and trying to be a more competitive team trying to win three four games trying to eventually contend you know for a bull berth and whatnot it's not just can you be like okay as as the quarterback right it's can you be the starting quarterback the entire season but KU's quarterbacks consistently, outside of a few exceptions, have been the worst quarterback play in the conference, in the Big 12. Can you, and not just the worst in the conference, again, outside of a few exceptions, but by a wide margin. Right. And so it's can you at least not be the worst by far, right? If, as opposed to being 10th of the 10 starting quarterbacks, can you be tied 9th? Or even going above that, can you not be the worst, right? Can you be the seventh or eighth best quarterback in the Big 12? And anything on top of that is the cherry on top, which the way Jalen Daniels finished last season, like if he were to build off that, he could even be a top half of the league quarterback, which that uh, is a whole nother discussion. But here is what happened uh, has happened for KU since Todd Reesing, which ironically enough, like Todd Reesing wasn't even, you know, what, a top three quarterback in the Big 12 in some of his years because you had – other guys who were Heisman candidates like Colt McCoy and Sam Bradford who won the Heisman. Um, you know, you can make your argument with like Chase Daniel and, and Graham Harrell and stuff. But the point is, like it wasn't a, a for sure thing that even as great as Todd Reesing was that he was like the best quarterback in the Big 12. But he was a top half of the league quarterback. He was a really good quarterback. He was more than competent enough. But since Todd Reesing, 
the most passing yards that a Kansas quarterback has had was Carter Stanley in 2019. He had 2,664 yards, which that's a good season, especially over 12-game season that's over 200 yards per game. Well, that, and he had that span of two games where he had like over 500 yards. Right, uh, the Texas <laughs> game and, and Texas stuff and, uh, when Brent Tierman took over. Yeah, exactly. Um, but for that to be the most that you've had since 2010 – you know, you're seeing other college teams where it's like their quarterbacks are throwing 3,000 a year or some air raid schools, which KU was running air raid for a while. You'll see guys throw for 4,000, whatever it is. The next most, though, it is such a sizable drop-off. Mm-hmm. Besides that Carter Stanley year, was Peyton Bender in 2018. He had 1,894 passing yards. 1,894, not even 2,000, is the second most passing yards a quarterback has had in a season for KU since Todd Reesing. Jordan Webb's right behind with 1,884. I still firmly believe in my heart in 2018, Carter Stanley should have got the starting job other than Peyton Bender. Yeah, that whole <laughs> thing was crazy. And when he had the actual good performance against Oklahoma State in that 2018 yeah. season, and I forget if it was Jesse Newell or what uh, beat writer asked him, like, uh, about the quarterback play, and, and David Beatty could have been like, yeah, we, we had really good play this game. Instead, he just took it as like a slight, and he was like, oh, not falling for that one. Uh, yeah, I remember you know, that. Like, <laughs> like, what, Dude, what are you doing? Uh, but nonetheless, that was more of a metaphor for the David Beatty era. Um, most passing touchdowns. Again, Carter Stanley, 2019, had 24 of them. Again, good numbers there. That's two a game, right? You'd gladly take that from the quarterback this year. Um but again, that's followed by 2018 Peyton Bender and 2011 Jordan Webb with 13. So the second yeah. most passing touchdowns you've had since Todd Reesing is just 13. That's very bad. That's, that's very bad. And then here are KU's ranks in total QBR since Todd Reesing. So 2010 on. And total QBR is a metric done by ESPN um, where it takes into account you know, the statistics. It takes into account... The like down and distance of your throw, right? If it's third down and eight, and you take a four yard check or a six yard check down, it might look good on the stats that you have a hundred percent completion percentage. You picked up six yards, like that's fine, all those things. But it was third down and eight, you got to throw to the sticks, like that doesn't help you, right? So it takes into account that it takes into account like time and score, all those things. Um, these are the ranks of, of KU quarterbacks in the Big Twelve in total QBR. Twenty ten, thirteenth of thirteen eligible. 2011, 10th of 11 eligible. 2012, 9th of 9 eligible. 2013, 14th of 14 eligible. I go on and on and on down the I'm list. I'm sensing a theme. Exactly. 10th of 11th eligible in 2014, 11th of 11th in 2015. 2016, none were eligible. 2017, you had two eligible, but they were 10th and 12th. 2018, you're 11th of 11. 2019, 8th of 10, which was the Carter Stanley year, which again goes back to the point I was making earlier. It's not even that you have to be top half. Just be, you know, as bad as the next worst or or be better than at least someone. Be better than a few people, which that was what Carter Stanley did. And you exactly. saw the results of that. He was still eighth of 10 in total QBR, but by being at the level of um, other players and even better than a few others, that KU team was ultra competitive. They won three games and they probably should have right. won one or two, maybe even three more. Um, 2020, you were 11th of 11. 2021, you were 9th of 9. And, and I mean, was, and I oh, mean the QB rating of 2019 mm-hmm. was almost almost skyrocketed, like miles better than, than no pun intended, uh, <laughs> so right. much better than all of those years since Todd Reesing, yeah. like you mentioned. Yeah, here so the, much better. Here are the total QBR numbers. I'm just going to list them off in order from 2010 on. 32.5, 36.8, 25.3, 23.9, 55.1, 31.2, 39.7. 
40.9. Um, and 50, by the way, is average, essentially, um, because essentially what that means is the number equates to what percentage you give your team a chance of winning. So if your QBR is a 95, you're giving your team a 95% chance of winning by comparison to other quarterback performances of what you did that specific right. game, right? So in theory, 50% means you gave your team a 50-50 chance to win. So you want to be 50 or above, ideally. The 55.1 was the uh, Michael Cummings year, which you know he wasn't had a really that, solid season. Wasn't that the year that KU almost upset TCU at home? Yes, uh, top five TCU team yeah. that almost made it to the college football playoff. Yeah, and that team I think won three games as well. That was uh, Clint Bowen kind of taking right. over as interim head coach. Um, outside of that year with Michael Cummings and the Carter Stanley year, no other year surpassed forty-one. So that's really a problem. Um, and so on average, if you total all that up, KU has on average, ranked 10.5 out of the 11 quarterbacks eligible. They've also, on average, been eight points worse than the next best QB in the league. So, again, can yeah. you just not be the worst? Exactly. And and that's honestly like a, a theme that can go through um, really all the different positions. Like, in theory, I, I talk about this all the time. If there are 40-something bowl games, and that means 80-whatever teams make it to a bowl game. Now, it's different because... You know, in the Big 12, maybe only seven teams are going to make it to a bowl game. So you need to be top seven in theory. But that just means try to be like top 80 in everything, right? Uh, Try to be top 80 in whatever because that would relate to being a bowl team. Um, I will say this, though, because that's the line that KU needs to jump. If Jalen Daniels would have been eligible because he only started those three games, so he wasn't eligible to make the list of total QBR by, you know, the number of passes attempted or whatever. His total QBR in those three games was 76.4, which if that would have qualified, that would have been the second best mark in the Big 12. The only guy he would have been behind was Caleb Williams for what he did at Oklahoma. So it's a small sample. I'm looking at that. He would have been just above Skylar Thompson. Exactly. It's It's a small sample, but who, by the way, just got drafted in the NFL a few months Mm -hmm. ago. Right. He, all three of the games came against Power 5 competition. All three of the games came against conference opponents. So this wasn't just a small sample where it's playing against your FCS opponent and then two non-conference games or whatnot. Looked to show a lot of growth. A lot of what he did looked pretty real. Yeah. Like, the the, the difference between his freshman year and last year, in my opinion— I feel I I just feel like his freshman year he wasn't game ready but he had to be thrown into the fire and and like I've said this so many times before where like if you give like a video game rating or something like that like let's say like an NCAA football rating for stuff like that I felt like field awareness was like out of 40 <laughs> because there were times where he would get sacked because he just tried to run the ball for no reason or something like that he did so much better last year regarding his on-field awareness and I think if he builds up to that I think he could be a top half quarterback this coming season. Yeah, and and I mean again, like you go back to he's seventeen as as a true freshman. The offensive line can't block. Like of course that wasn't going to go well right. for him. Um, so I I don't know that I would expect him again to be the second best quarterback. Uh, but to your point, if he's a top half quarterback, like that changes things immensely of how we look at KU football. If I guaranteed you that KU is going to get you know twelve games of a top half quarterback in the league. I think you would probably lean to them winning four to six games, to be completely honest. Um, Now, like I said, 
I don't think that should be the expectation because last year, if you look at it, like Jason Bean was, and that was the third best total QBR you've had from Jason Bean since Todd Reesing. But even then, it was 20 points below from what Jason Bean did to the the next best quarterback. Or you go back to 2020, KU's quarterback play was 27 points below the next best quarterback. So it's also a combination of can you just not be the worst? Can you be as good as the next best in the conference where you're at least conference level on that regard? And if you end up being the sixth or seventh or whatever best quarterback in the Big 12, even that is a huge boon to KU from where they have been over this last decade plus. And I think Jalen Daniels showed enough at the end of last season that you should have confidence that that can be a very real possibility. With Lane Gillespie, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.